Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So it's Federal Reserve Decision Day without a news conference, which typically means go to lunch and don't expect much. But officials have a tricky problem to navigate at this week's meeting. How to describe inflation that has just bounced back to their elusive 2% target. We're joined now by Alan Ruskin, Deutsche Bank Global Co-Head of G10 FX Strategy. Alan, always great to catch up with you, sir. So thank you for coming on the program. Oh, my pleasure. Help me understand how they're going to navigate that problem. How do they describe inflation now it's back at target pretty much? I think, you know, it's a, it's a relatively easy job to describe the past as distinct from predict the future. And in this instance, as you rightly point out, they're really going to be focused on really describing the past and this slow edging up an in inflation towards 2%. So is, they can effectively just say they're, you know, close to close to target, as it were. Is this in line with your expectations for how inflation is going to evolve this year? Well, I think uh, there's some danger that, you know, not just over this year, when it has to look a little bit further than that, um, over the uh, next couple of years, inflation is just going to continue to drift higher. And one of the more interesting aspects of uh, inflation, you know, we focus a lot on the cost side. But in general, the demand side is slowly going to place upward pressure on inflation. So uh, we see inflation indicators lag GDP. Um, We see that effectively lag ISM you know, the, the, these coincident indicators by roughly about 18 months to 24 months. So we've already got in the works really some acceleration in inflation that's going to occur. And do you see capacity constraints in the, in the data, the survey data that's been out in the last 24 hours, Alan? I'm not too worried about uh, domestic capacity. It used to be, back in the early 90s, one of my favorite indicators in terms of uh, predicting inflation going forward. That fell by the wayside when I think global capacity really became the big feature. Yeah, Global capacity is something very hard to prove econometrically as being a key driver of inflation. Mm-hmm. But believe me, it, you know it's, it's there in the background. And Powell's taken the same line on that. Give us the Alan Ruskin on real rate versus capital flows amid rising inflation. Do you just default to capital flow studies because you really don't know where the real rate's going to be? Well, I think uh, the inflation expectations and the knock-on effect in terms of real rates really matters in environments uh, like the EM countries where inflation might be relatively high. So it depends on the pair in the study. So if you're looking exactly at something like dollar Brazil, extremely relevant to look at uh, real real rates. If you're looking at countries where you're comparing, uh, say, a country A with an inflation rate of 1% and another country with an inflation rate of quarter one and a half or two percent cable that kind of differential exactly yeah. i think those kind of differentials don't really matter and in the end i think nominal rates are what the investors will focus on so from a capital flow standpoint i think we'd really kind of keep keep to nominal rates in that uh, in that set of circumstances so alan big story in fx over the last couple of weeks is this resurgent us dollar uh, what's the view for you right now? Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of momentum here. I think the catalyst for it has really been the 10-year yield sort of backing up above 3%. I think that's that's been absolutely crucial. There have been other background factors that have been maybe helpful. The euro economy seemed to be slowing down uh, a, a little bit. Maybe the uh, impasse, the, uh, you know, the, the malaise you see in terms of uh, Italian politics, maybe that's a factor as well. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's really yields catching up 
now and us reaching what I think is a little bit of a tipping point in terms of uh, yields uh, hitting levels where they're relevant again for the currency. Where rate differentials start to matter. What's the catalyst for that change? Yeah, I think you know to some extent it's uh, it's just literally the pace of the change that matters. So when you see accelerations in heels, particularly the back end of the curve, that sets in train more of a sort of risk-off move, and the dollar looks pretty good against all the EM currencies, the commodity currency complex. But uh, you know, I think it's now reached the point where it's not just the rate of change. I think the, the level actually matters as well. So this three percent level on the ten years big. If we go through three oh five, I think people see this as a shift in regime really, and that opens the door to three twenty five on the ten year, and that I think would wow. give the dollar another boost. And I think a lot of people now starting to rethink where they believed previously where the Federal Reserve rate would peak. Do you think there's a little bit more uncertainty, doubt injected into that story? There was some comfort over the last couple of years that that was one way it was just going to drift lower over time. Yes. Do you have that same comfort now? No, I think that's been an evolving story. And I think the Federal Reserve has also signaled the fact that the peak in the interest rates is not ultimately where our star is, where the equilibrium rate will ultimately settle. There's actually a cycle in the Fed funds rate, believe it or not. Now, we know that as, as you know, more or less a fact, really, in terms of what we've ever seen in the past, that in fact, the peak in the Fed funds rate is way above the equilibrium rate. So there's not going to be some sort of miracle sort of landing on some small aircraft carrier where somehow rates, you know, sort of just gently land at the equilibrium so rate really and then just point. stay so static. At, at some point, rates at the Federal Reserve become restrictive. Right now, real rates are incredibly accommodative at the Federal Reserve. When do they become restrictive, Alan? Well, the first port of call, I would say, is, you know, really take real rates up to something like, uh, you know, 1%. I mean, the equilibrium, the R-star rate may be slightly below that, maybe between 0.5 and, and, and 1%. But that means a nominal rate of, it, say, at least 25 uh, to 3% in Fed funds. That's a starting point. But I think you don't want to get too obsessed with the Fed funds rate. I think what happens at the back end of the curve is absolutely crucial. This is the stuff that, uh, you know, uh, drives a lot of credit at certain drives mortgage right. credit. But the back end of the curve is not a linear path. It's very quadratic and you get to these tipping points, almost kinks in the movement where you get jump conditions. Where do you is three and a quarter percent tenure the first test of a jump condition? Well I think we've been jumping really, you know, pretty much from two and a half to three. So maybe we've already gone through what would amount to okay. something of a the jump. First jump. Yeah. Um Thereafter, you presume it might get a little slower going, really. So, you know, 305 becomes 325, 325 becomes uh, 350. I think, uh, you know, at this point in time, those jumps are assumed to become smaller. Now, if that's not the case. What's the history of that squeeze, uh, the the change there from three and a quarter to 350? What's the history? Do we end up with a lot of market volatility? Well, if you're looking at market volatility, I would say the best place to look is certainly bond volatility. So I think that's really the epicenter of all vol as such. Um, Look, we're still likely to end up with a 10-year yield well below past cycle lows. Now, if we saw a broader normalization, say, for example, a 10-year yield up at 5%, Mm -hmm. okay, that is almost certainly going to breed 
an enormous amount of volatility. Three and a quarter percent, three and a half percent, we can just about live with. But I think we're seeing a little bit in the emerging market uh, countries and emerging flows that it's start. You know, the U.S. heels, the actual level of heels, is now taking a bit of a toll. Alan Ruskin, thank you so much with Deutsche Bank this morning. Why don't you bring in uh, an important Apple guest on the financials of Apple, Joe? Yeah, the stock up in a pre-market by 4.7%. You know how this works, Tom. We go into the earnings, nervous, pessimistic. Will this be the quarter where Apple fails? And let me tell you, it was not. Service revenue surging, a $100 billion stock repurchase program, and a higher dividend also helping lift the sentiment as we come out of results day for Apple. Joining us now is Angelo Zeno, CFRA analyst, and he joins us on the phone. Angelo, great to get your perspective. Give me some perspective on that monster stock buyback program. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about the stock buyback here, $100 billion um, is, is an enormous number. Um, what's interesting is they didn't give an actual timetable of when they plan on, on you know buying back the shares. We actually believe they're going to be very aggressive with this and potentially um, look to, to reduce their share count by as much as 10% here uh, over the next year, um, given um, you know, our belief that they think that the shares are extremely attractive at current level. I mean, Angelo, when you just think about it, reducing the share count by 10% is, is a phenomenal task. And the view of Apple and management at the moment is we'd prefer to do the buybacks than really boost the dividend because we think the stock is undervalued. Angelo, in your mind, to what extent is this stock still undervalued? So, um, you know, it's interesting first with the buybacks. I mean, you look at how much they've bought back. It's, they've bought back about 24% of their shares um, since, you know, you know, back in 2012, which is absolutely enormous. Um, you know, but our belief is, you know, the, the 12-month target price on the shares um, of $195 represents um, some nice upside. Um, and as a result, right. you know, we do think um, this is a good time to be buying back shares. Angelo uh, Zeno with us. And Angelo, you just gave the statistic I've been looking for all morning, which is they bought back 24% of their shares. As you know, good morning, William Priest over at Epic. There's a thing called shareholder yield, which can be defined different ways. But basically, it's the dividend and the share buyback percent is a yield. Isn't it double digit for Apple? Well, that's interesting. Um you know, it, it, they've bought back about $300 billion, or, you know, they've returned, let's say, about $300 yeah, billion, it's my math. Um, since, you know, 2012. So, you know, that being said, I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, at this point, uh, it, our view is that you will see that double um, percentage yield here, at least in, in 2018. I mean, this is beyond profound. You know, oh, that's sh- just stunning double-digit numbers. shareholder yield means January 1st. You start the day in a pretty good pole position. They are stunning numbers. And Angelo, I think we go back to the basic question around Apple. How do I value this company? What multiple should I apply to it? Is it a value stock? Is it a growth stock? What is it? And what do you tell clients when they ask you that, Angelo? Yeah, well, that's interesting, right? So, uh, you know, and that's, I guess, the, the, the important question here with Apple. So when we look at Apple, historically, the way it's been valued, it's been valued as a hardware company. Uh, when you look at the multiple we've put on the company, it essentially is um, one that we value as a hardware company, that being just under 15 times earnings um, based on our, our next year's estimate. But that being said, um, you know, the company is transitioning towards the service-based 
uh, business, which is more recurring in nature. And, you know, our view is by 2020, about 35, or about 35 to 40 percent of their profits will come between services and what's called other hardware. Um, and because of that, um, we do think over time you've got the potential for that multiple to expand, but it probably will continue to take some time before the street recognizes that. What are you looking for from the revenue in the services business, Angelo, and how profitable is it? I mean, I heard numbers of 30-something billion last night and forecasts of getting up to 50 billion, which in and of itself is another company and a big company as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, when you look at what we're looking at, you know, this year you're looking at, let's say, 36 to 838 billion in 20 in fiscal 18. Um, we think by 2020 you could start getting close to that that 50 billion level. Um, and then when you take into account, like we said, other hardware offerings, you could potentially be even looking at another 20 billion there. So um, you know that kind of tells you the story here is no longer iPhones for Apple. Right. Anyone that thinks that is really missing the picture when it comes to Apple. Have you done a sum of the parts? I mean, have you really? I mean, Gene Munster legendarily did this, folks, like three or four years ago when he was up at uh, Piper Jeff in 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 um in Minneapolis but uh, Angelo have you done a real sum of the parts of Apple you know we we haven't looked at it in a while it's something that we've done in the past um, but you know, currently, well, come on, break some news here. Make it up. It's okay. It's Bloomberg surveillance. You can make up the number. What is it? Yeah, that's that's something we'd rather not do. Um, <laughs> but you know, when, when you when you kind of look at the company here, when you look at their net cash position, still at 140 45 billion, um, that alone, um, you know, plus the services business as well yeah. as kind of these Keep other going. hardware offerings. Keep going. You know, we we think the combination of those three gives you, you know, about 60% or so of the total value of the company, at least. Um, so, it's like I said, it's no longer um, iPhones that are really okay. kind of the, the story or the valuation of this company. Are you and trying to get folks, Angelo in trouble? Yeah, excuse me. Is now, that what and now folks, this is plug and chug to get Zeno over the edge with the general counsel of CFRA. <laughs> you take what you just heard, folks, 60% of value, and then you extrapolate out three to five years, some form of trend, John, and then you come back and you fill in the X. How'd I do, Angelo? Angelo, are you okay. there? <laughs> Angelo's like running away, calling compliance. I'm getting a little uncomfortable here. <laughs> okay. Angelo Zeno, thank you so much. I hope you have your Run, job Angelo. at CFR. I hope he comes back. <laughs> well. Why did you do was, this? <laughs> that was classic. Angelo Zeno, thank you so much. It's CFR. Okay, folks, what's going on there is, is when you publish in the investment business, it's really important. And, and this is critical. What analysts write is more important than what they say because the paper trail is everything. And so what you heard there was a running joke, which is he can't talk about it, John, yeah. until he writes it. But did you hear and those he numbers? Can we get to those statistics? <clears throat> what did he say? The the overall stock of Apple since 2012 has been cut by 20-something percent. 24%. Because yeah. of these buybacks, yes, which is phenomenal. Yeah. It's phenomenal the yeah. amount of support this <clears throat> equity has had from buybacks. No, yeah, there's no ways of doing this, but one thing you know, and Taylor Riggs, awesome on this. You take the harmonic rate. So if they're they're buying back twenty four percent, yeah, then the next block of time they buy back twelve percent, and the next block of time they buy back six. percent And Angelo's saying we're taking it and down ten percent with yeah. this one hundred billion buyback. <clears throat> but if you do harmonic, you go twenty four, twelve, six, three. And the key thing is to add up 
add up 1263, which is 18 is 21. So 24 plus 21 is how much? John Tucker? Remember when Dylan went <clears throat> to harmonic? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that was electric. I'm no, sorry. I got confused. Nobody had harmonica when he went. Can we just oh, get it? Honestly, our listeners <laughs> want to know where the stock is. The stock's up by over 4% in the pre-market. Yes. And there's two big stories here, Tom, that paint yeah. a very bullish picture for Apple. One is this huge right. buyback program that's going to give that fundamental support right. demand to the equity. And the other is this huge surging services business, right. which many people think deserves a higher multiple on the overall company. 24% plus 21 is 45%. So they'd retire 45% percent over your time estimate and that's that's study we've never seen this john no, no. i mean the intel. buybacks the buybacks are phenomenal <laughs> intel in the in the you know the heyday maybe is the only equivalent i can think in microsoft you wonder what they'll do with all their cash maybe they'll do the same I don't know. I don't know either. But this that was, was first, really good. And Angel Zeno, thank you this, so much. That was this, this was really the, strong. This was the first really, really time strong. we'd really got our hands in the last 24 hours around yeah. what they were going to do with this cash after the tax bill came yeah. through um, at the turn of the year. For those of you that are pro, Angel Zeno out on our podcast. We'll be sure that he gets on the podcast today so you can run through that math uh, in, you know, pause, repeat. Lindsay Piegza uh, at Stiffel is is known for incredibly important charts. Uh, just as one example, in her latest report, is a differential of labor force participation of the real working world versus kids, and it's really something. Is one social aspect as Chairman Powell uh, reports today uh, with the Fed again. Our full coverage this afternoon, Dr. Piegza, Wonderful to have you with us. I really want to dive into Fed Arcania right now. What are the distinctions of debate at the table of the Fed? How big is the dissent from a very new chairman? Oh, it, it's going to have a very big impact, and it's really going to highlight the ongoing discussion that's going on at the Federal Reserve among officials. Now, the statement seems to give a sense that there's a united front mm-hmm. among policy officials. But if we do see a dissent, that's really going to indicate that that's not the case. There is a growing divergence of opinions. State the divergence. Regarding inflation. I'm sorry? State the divergence. What's the, what's the distinction that allows for this argument as people are being polite with Chairman Powell? Well, the biggest question surrounds inflation. Is inflation going to continue to rise as the committee seems to expect, or is inflation simply reflecting some one-off price reversals that we saw this time last year, and then prices will continue to lose momentum away from that 2% target? And that really is the question. Inflation has not shown strong upward momentum, and some Fed officials are saying, looking at the data, there's really no indication that we should be concerned about reining in out-of-control prices at this point and accelerate the pace of rate increases. Instead, we should err on the side of caution and wait until inflation is clearly stabilized above 2% before proceeding with additional rate hikes. And Lindsay, are you confident that inflation is stabilizing above 2%? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Now, certainly the CPI and the PPI show indications of rising price pressures. But when we look at the broader measure, the PCE, which is what the Fed looks at, and we exclude food and energy costs, what we see is that inflation has failed to meet that 2% target 
for the past 21 of the past 25 years. So there really is no historical precedent for inflation gaining momentum and pushing higher. And with the, the outlook for the U.S. economy, really to the downside yeah. at this point. John, meaning just, our, our, no, go ahead, Lindsay, please. Well, I was just going to say our thesis is looking at the U.S. economy, the risk is not that we go from 2% GDP to 3%. The risk is that we go from 2% down to 1%, again, putting yeah. downward pressure potentially on inflation. John, that, that, that factoid this year is incredibly important that 20 X years, we haven't made the 2%. You know, it's really, really important. Well, inflation has been trending lower. And is that a structural story? I guess, is that the question we should be asking, Lindsay? Well, I think in part it is a structural story. Remember, we're, we're no longer isolated. This is a global economy. And as we continue to import deflation from abroad, meaning cheap goods from abroad, that will essentially put a ceiling on domestic price levels. Now, certainly we could see that uh, reverse if trade tensions lead to an outright trade wall and we put up barriers to the inflow of capital, labor, goods. But barring that uh, dire scenario, I do think from a structural standpoint, maybe we have lowered the ceiling to what inflation uh, we can reach in the domestic economy. So to line up, and, and I've been making jokes about this, Lindsay, as you know I do, there's a, there's a live meeting, folks, and then there's a dead meeting. <laughs> Lindsay, I want you to explain why our global audience, our Tom Keene, John Farrell audience, should listen to my blather at 2 p.m. this afternoon of a dead meeting. And the answer is there's a lot to talk about, isn't there? Well, there, there potentially is a lot to talk about, particularly when we look at the language within the statement. If the Fed uh, maintains a very gradual assessment of the rate pathway, or if there's some sort of hint to not only a June rate increase, but an accelerated rate path, that certainly could uh, spook the market into concerns that the Fed is willing to tighten too soon, too fast, and maybe derail mm the recovery in the U.S. economy. So there's a lot of uh, details. The devil's in the details when it comes to the statement later this afternoon. Dr. Piazza, thank you so much. With Stephen Nicholas uh, today, thrilled, thrilled that she could be with us. With us for a, a good bit here, Dennis Gartman, uh, the Gartman letter. Dennis, there's a lot to talk about today. I want to get the gold call out of the way because people are always interested on in gold. Yeah. Is gold linked to dollar strength now? Is gold linked to fundamentals that are traditional? It's lost its, its link to fundamentals that I think are traditional. It is linked for the last several months directly tick for tick, pip for pip to what the euro is doing. Not particularly what the dollar is doing, but what the euro is doing. Take a chart of the euro. Take a chart of, of gold, and they are moving in absolute 100% convention one with the other. That's where the that's where the uh, the relationship the relationship is now. It may change. Uh, gold should be trading higher because I th other commodity prices have begun to move higher. Inflationary risks are beginning to become incumbent. But for right now, as goes the euro, so goes gold. As goes the euro. Do you have a euro? I mean, I mean, is it dollar strength, dollar weakness, and how does that fold over euro for Dennis Gartman? If you take a look at a, at a expansive chart over the course of the past several years, I think you've seen right now a movement. Uh, 124 has, has stopped the euro. 120 is an important uh, technical circumstance. Any strength that you get in the euro, any bounce that you have in the next week or two, you have to be a seller. A major trend line has been broken. It's definitive. We are on the process of tightening monetary policy. And the Europeans are considering 
tightening monetary mm-hmm. policy. It shall be quite some period of time before they do it, and all things being otherwise equal, the euro gets weaker, the dollar gets stronger. The dollar gets stronger? Does that mean commodity prices fall? That's the problem. I, I think commodity prices want to go higher, and what's interesting is we all know that as goes the dollar, so goes in contravention the commodity markets on balance and generally. But what's happened over the course of the past month or so if somebody had told you three weeks ago that dollar euro was trading from 124 down to one a big figure 119 and then ask you where are commodity markets you would have to say they're lower no interestingly enough they're actually higher that that relationship is broken down so normally one would say a strong dollar begets weak commodities hasn't happened in the past month something's changing so what is changing because we're getting getting gas we're getting higher gasoline prices for the summer driving season. And you're getting higher wheat prices, you're getting higher cotton prices, you're getting higher lumber prices, you're getting higher steel prices, you're getting higher aluminum prices. So why are we waiting for inflation if we're the Fed? Maybe it doesn't pass through to labor costs. That's probably the only thing that hasn't been rising, and even that, I think, is going to begin to rise. So I am one who thinks that the Fed has already won its battle with 2% inflation, and soon she'll be wondering, mm-hmm. how did we get to 3 and 4% as quickly as we did? Is that where the 10-year goes? I think the 10-year... I, I am of the generation that still thinks that I, I can remember trading the uh, a ten year at an eight percent coupon. I can remember trading the long bond at a fourteen and a quarter percent coupon. So to think that the that the ten year can get to four percent or five percent doesn't bother me much at all. In fact, I think that's really quite rational. It, it, I want to in here for the next couple of minutes and come back and talk about this. Well, is is the future of global Wall Street? Did you see it? Let's review. You were in the commodity business as a young lad. That's where I started. I started in the cotton business. I in, started as the Kansas economist. City. No, actually in Raleigh, North Carolina. I uh-huh. was an economist for Cotton Incorporated. Cotton keeps America feeling okay. comfortable. How far is Raleigh from Nashville? Like a pop? Uh, no, far. it's quite quite some distance. It's probably five hundred miles through Chattanooga, then up and across. That's correct. Alliance Bernstein is moving to Nashville. What does it symbolize to Dennis Gartman? It symbolizes the internet and the expansiveness of of communications and the ease with which communications is is transmitted nowadays. I think that's what that has told us, that you don't have to be in London. You don't have to be in New York. You love coming to New York, though. I mean, you're living down. You're lying, what, 500 acres and... You know, I mean, you got water moccasin on the back side of the well, actually, down we by the water, river in Virginia, right? We don't have water moccasins, but we do have we have an abundance of snakes if you look around for them. I we live on the second tee of my country club, so it's but not you quite like as, to come, you know, the Hoi Polloi on Central Park South and all that, right? Absolutely, we, my my wife and I love to come here. It used to be we'd visit our daughter who lived here. She gave up and moved to Charlotte. And that was because of the same reasons Alliance Bernstein's given up and moving to Charlotte? Yeah, well, actually, because for two reasons. One, the cost of living here was so expensive, and two, the cost of taxes for her was so expensive. She took a 20% pay cut and is way ahead on balance. Do you think that moving to Nashville will even help the business because it gives everybody a different perspective? I have lived, I have run my business from from Suffolk, Virginia for the past 35 years, and I must tell you it's gotten easier and easier and easier to live there because of the better communications that exist. So I think that Alliance Bernstein has made a brilliant decision. And it's a sophisticated place. It is not an unsophisticated place, to be certain. I, I, this is, this is a, a seminal shift. If Alliance Bernstein is capable of moving and is, and is going to make the move, others shall follow. Let's talk about investing money right now. You mentioned the 10-year at, what, 4%, 5%? Oh, I think, I think 4% is, is a given By over when? the course of... Pardon? By when? What kind of time frame? Well, I think 4% before the end of, within 12 months of where we are right now, and I think 5% within 24 months of where we are right now. What does that do to the auto industry and other industries that depend on credit in order to sell their products? It makes it a little more difficult, doesn't it? You know, Pim, I'm looking at Suffolk, Virginia. There's a house here smaller than Gartman's, 
Five bedrooms, six baths, 7,000 square feet. The deck off the back of the house is bigger than yours and my place. Combined. Combined. Yes. I mean, and it's only 1.6 million. This this puppy outside New York would be four, five, six million dollars. We, I'll be honest. We live on an acre and a half on the second tee of my club, looking into the James River. I think we have six thousand square feet in a nice backyard. And if you bid me eight hundred thousand for my house, I'd hit your bid so fast it would make your head spin. Dennis Garbin with us as we compare and contrast. A real estate uh, deal going to happen on surveillance, maybe. Well, huh? I don't know. You know, Alliance Get your clubs out. over to Nashville, and you know, people are. I, I mean, is, Goldman Sachs with their big operation. It'll all be okay, Utah. Tom. It's still the United States. I, I like living one zero zero two two. It's okay. There are other zip codes. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.